Welcome to the No Film School podcast. This is Gigi Hawkins. Do you ever send off your application for a screenwriting development lab or a film project market or a pitch accelerator, an application that has taken weeks of work on top of writing the script or making the sizzle or building the pitch deck? And when you click that submit button, you just feel like you've shipped your baby off into a black hole void that will only result in a rejection email if you're lucky. Clearly, I have to unpack some of this with my therapist, but in my time here at No Film School, I really started to learn more about what happens on the other side and what happens after you submit these things into the ether. This journey we're all on to become filmmakers in one way or another, it's a long journey. And one path that folks choose to explore often are these labs and development programs. I've started to understand the ecosystem and that it is often a long game, a constructive part of growing your career and helping you find your voice. Case in point, check out our interview with the team behind Birth at Rebirth. They applied to the Sundance Labs five times before getting in. But also, it's so easy to lose track of the fact that there are actually humans behind these submissions, humans who care a whole lot about creativity and filmmaking. This week, I speak with Bryce Norbitz. Bryce is the director of artist programs at Tribeca Studios, where she oversees programs like Through Her Lens, the Tribeca Chanel Women's Filmmaker Program, and Tribeca slash AT&T Presents Untold Stories, which provides a million dollars for a feature film each year. Bryce came up in the theater world, an indie theater world too, moving from Chicago to New York. And before moving into the world of festivals and film, she spent a lot of time working with creators to help them develop their voice. And this week, she spent time talking me through the stages of these development programs Again, that in the past, before I started to experience them myself, felt like this big black box of uncertainty and arguably a waste of time. Well, coming out of the other side of programs like Film Independent and the Moonshot Challenge, I can say they are absolutely worth investing in. Bryce and I will unpack what artist development programs and labs are and how they exist within the festival ecosystem and outside of them why the heck brands are involved and the various ways they can interact with creative, sometimes a ton, sometimes not at all, how labs build lasting and meaningful relationships with independent filmmakers and what does that actually look like. And Bryce will give us some very tactical advice on how you can be approaching your applications. This interview with Bryce will not only shed light on the process that, again, feels sometimes like this void, but also help you understand why it's important for you as an emerging creator to be investing your time in this and how it can be something that you actually use as a tool to further your creative vision, even if you don't make it into the lab or program that you're applying for. And now my interview with Bryce Norbitz. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome, Bryce. Thank you so much for joining us on the No Film School podcast. Oh, yeah. I am thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. So for our listeners, I always think back to who I was when I first stumbled upon this podcast. And I think I typed into my podcast app, like film, how to be a filmmaker podcast. And this came up, started listening. Here we are seven years later and boy, have the things have changed being on the (laughs) other side. But one thing I'd just love to start off with, can you describe what an artist development program is or an artist development lab and how they sort of exist within festivals and outside of festivals? Oh, sure. Yeah. And you know what? There is not enough of them, but there are a lot of great ones in the U.S. and abroad. I'm very happy to have been part of Tribeca's artist development work for nine years. Kind of crazy. But, you know, they exist to provide filmmakers with support, guidance, sometimes mentorship, sometimes therapy, (laughs) but to really be there uh, through every step in the process, whether it's early creative development and Uh, the fleshing out and nuancing of ideas all the way through how to distribute and reach audiences. A lot of programs are really targeted and specific around a stage of the process. Some provide funding, which is wonderful, and some provide a premiere or a dedicated distribution platform. There are great organizations like Sundance and Film Independent and Gotham that we kind of sit amongst in the space and a lot of uh, local regional ones too. And I think the goal for everybody is to just make it easier because it's quite hard uh, to break into film and entertainment, television, all of it. It's quite hard to make your first feature and to just start doing shorts. It really is, especially if you haven't gone to film school or you don't have natural connections, resources, and the ability to just try stuff out. So yeah, we I, we in this space just really want to provide whatever we can to either demystify a part of the process and make it feel clearer and attainable and also to just champion voices that feel truly independent and exciting and fresh and new who can't just walk into a room and pitch with ease for any number of reasons. I think of the times that I first started to interact with applying for development programs or labs, and I felt like I was applying to college. I felt like I had to be (laughs) the most buttoned up and the most proper. And I, it felt so stunted and and stilted in informality. And then I landed a job at the Gotham, which you mentioned, a nonprofit that's based in Brooklyn that is the sister organization to Film Independent. And I, because of my podcast background, ran their project market for podcasts. And that was a huge like learning process to be like, oh, actually, it's just 
a human on the other side who is passionate about storytelling and their job is to simply support the creatives, which then, of course, informed my applying to lab programs and development programs where I was like, let me actually spill my guts on the table and be as vulnerable and open and honest and realistic about where I'm at in my career. And that's sort of when things changed for me. So, So yeah, I'd love to hear kind of like, when you're in the application reviewing process, like what are the things, and I'm sure you get this question all the time, but what are the things that that generally stand out for? And what do you look for in submissions, which can be so uh, intimidating oh, yes. and time-consuming on the other <laughs> side? Well, first of all, I'm really glad you had that experience. I wish that everybody had the chance to have that experience because it's true, there's only a few people that work here. We're like two to three full-time at any given moment. And then maybe a series of reviewers or someone to curate a specific program and work with us. Uh, but we're not a big team. And like you said, we're, we do this because we love it and we are not the filmmakers. We have a different skill set. We are developing a different expertise. And that I think that pertains really exactly to what we're looking for in an application, which is a voice and a vision that lifts off the page. That sounds really nebulous, but for us, it takes the form of all the pieces of the puzzle coming together to give one cohesive vision. We ask for a lot, especially for the programs that produce features. We have the Untold Stories program, which is $1 million to make one feature a year. What we're looking for with that is an exciting story, fresh dynamic. I mean, that's always, always the first thing. But we're looking for what the urgency behind it, why this filmmaker wants to tell the story now, because it will premiere within one year. So what's the relevancy of it? How is it going to be new and different to audiences or a twist on something we know, a complication on a story that's out there? You know, what, what is going to challenge us? But then we really are looking at how the lookbook the written description of the artistic vision, even like the letters of support, how the artistic vision is described, it doesn't match the script. I mean, that's just something that absolutely has to happen. But then all the logistics, does the budget make sense? Are there big, huge gaps? If you're writing a, you know, exciting, thrilling sci-fi piece, we could love the script. And if we look at the budget and the VFX line is like teeny tiny baby line, it's hard to say, okay, this team is ready for this particular challenge, which again, it has to be made within one year. So there's not a lot of room for error. If we're talking about some other programs like labs and early development grants, things that are meant to be set earlier in the process, there's a lot more room to look at creativity as being like the sole reason to take a project because what we're going to help with is the rest. We're going to help with making sure there's achievability and you have the right support to do it. But when I read an application, personally, I read a log line and then I kind of skip to the why do you want to tell this story part and work backwards. I really like to have a foundation for why this film is going to exist and needs to exist from your perspective, the filmmaker, before I start digging in to the details of even the synopsis, honestly. Not everybody on our team works that way. I know other people actually look at the previous directing work first to get a sense of like taste and style and skill and then move toward the full treatment, which is like two to four page breakdown. And then they read the why. So we all have our different ways of approaching it. But ultimately, we need to get in a room together and say, this all just works. 
And it's right for this program because there's a million things that, you know, would be perfect for the Sundance Lab that can't work for Untold because of the speed and vice versa. So yeah, specificity is very, very, very helpful to us. Yeah. Two things stand out from your response. And the first is that is it is your job when you're filling out these applications to arm the people who are reading it with all of the information that they need. And for example, if you are pitching a sci-fi movie that like from the surface level or from somebody just reading alone, they're like, well, sci-fi equals VFX equals, you know, high budget. But like, say you have a superpower or you have a an idea of like, well, the sci-fi is incredibly grounded and actually the budget around what puts it in this like near future world is all done with this simple, clear technique. Like you yes. can actually help somebody understand why actually this will work. And, and yeah. being just able to- Just tell us. Yeah, exactly. It, you know? exactly. We only, know what, we only know what you're telling us. So yeah. more information is better. The other thing that I think these applications have always been helpful for me is that they help me understand what I'm making. Because when you have to mm. articulate it, and put it on paper and make sure that somebody who has no context and who doesn't know you usually like can get what you're trying to do. You have done the work to articulate and crystallize your vision. And that is hard and it takes a lot of energy <laughs> and time. But it, I think regardless, it is worth the investment if it does nothing but articulate to yourself exactly what you're going for, which can help you with every single stage of the process, whether you make it into the program or not. I say the exact same thing about pitching because pitching is hard and people hate it because <laughs> it's not yeah. fun. Yeah. And it makes you feel like you're now a marketing executive and not a film director. So I, I, I love that same concept though. The more you speak it out loud, the more you find the words that suit you and that you feel are true. That takes practice to do that. But then it becomes like a goalpost for yourself. If you're submitting a treatment and an application or you're pitching something that you're not excited about and it doesn't feel representative, every time you do it or you read it, you're going to have that voice in your head that's like, and that can actually help you, I think, go back to the work. Mm -hmm. If, you know, if every time somebody reads or hears something and they ask you the same question or there's some confusion or some part where they're not seeming engaged, it's probably stemming from the writing and, and not necessarily from the... So these tools all just go back to, I think, the basic of the creative and learning how to kind of flex them so that they're useful in both directions is a, a skill to develop that I think is worth the time. If you have that, I mean, there's not a lot of time in independent filmmaking or money to pay for your time. So that is all said with like a huge grain of salt, but yeah. I think it's worth worthwhile. And if you frame it as part of the discovery process, part of the development process, part of the job that you're doing to make this project come to fruition, I think it contextualizes it for you and you can see the value of it. Now, I'm glad you are bringing up this idea of like the value of getting to the point where you're pitching, for example, or getting to the point where you're applying. But I also want to talk about, you know, the process before, say, winning or being accepted mm. into the lab. So we often focus on 
being in or being a winner. Uh, but making it as a finalist can also open doors for your career. So for example, Vuk Lungolov Klotz, who was an AT&T Untold Stories finalist, just had last year premiered his film at Sundance, Mutt. We got to have him on along with his star, interviewed them at Sundance, but then also had a check-in right before we published the episode when the film was doing its theater run. But like, Vuk was a, a finalist, not a winner. But clearly, like that was part of the journey of getting this film made. So I'd love to hear about the people who were near near the end goal that is like the celebrated, you know, winner yeah. or final or like you're in, but the people who are like still very close to it, if that makes sense. Yes. Well, first of all, let's shout out that film, Mutt. It is beautiful. It's sweet. It's funny. It's sexy. It is a great film. I'm so happy for them and they deserve everything that they're receiving and is coming to them. I also will shout out that episode was excellent because it was so detailed, I think, in Vuk's vision and how it was executed and the collaboration with him and Leo is so unique and just jumps off the screen, in my opinion. So they everything that Vuk said in that episode was on paper when he applied. He was so ready. (laughs) He did other labs. Like he lived with the film so much that it felt so congealed. So they were a really, really natural choice to be a finalist for Untold Stories. I mean, for what, you know, the moniker of Untold Stories means, that film is, I mean, we're honestly just proud that it was part of the program. It's just such a great representative of what we're looking to do they had to prepare a 10-minute pitch. And we do most of the pitch in a video form. So we provide a development grant to all of the finalists that they can use either to create this video or other development activities that they need it for so that they can keep the project moving along. They work with me and others at Tribeca for a few months to put a verbal pitch, a video pitch together, and also to refresh all of their application materials. So we do go through the script and their treatment and their lookbooks, and we give advice and ideas and ask questions and uh, try and make sure that when the jury looks at everything, it's at the best possible place. It's really important for Untold Stories that the decision of who's going to receive a million dollars is not just based on a pitch alone, because People, you know, like there's different levels of comfort on stage asking questions. There's different, like there's many elements that go into making these pitch videos. So we make sure that jury jurors read scripts, all scripts. They look at budgets. They look at materials. It's a very thorough decision because it's a whole feature fund. It's life-changing. It needs to be thorough. So that's what we do in the few months leading up. For the five filmmakers that pitch, it's one day at Tribeca, the first day of the festival a packed live audience, which is really exciting. We video record the pitch. It's available. Please watch it if you're interested in this kind of thing because I'm actually, I've been told that film schools sometimes use this to talk about pitching, which like I was so happy (laughs) and excited to hear that because I did not, I did not go to film school and I don't know what happens there, but I love that they're watching the video. So they, we do that. The live pitch is kind of intense because of all these factors, but everybody should be well-prepared and ready to go. And then the video pitch gets a lot of attention and a lot of eyeballs. And I'll use Mutt as an example. 
there were people that they had asked and people they had not asked to to watch the pitch that were very moved and ultimately decided to give them some of their first funding just based on having access to this program and just really believing in what they wanted to do. So it was a good Kickstarter. It really moved them pretty swiftly into production, actually, just I'm speaking a little bit on their behalf. But I know it's true that being a part of the program unlocked a lot for them financially. And then what we were able to do was also co-host their premiere party at Sundance as Untold Stories. We had them on a panel at Tribeca. So the idea is to like maintain relationships with the finalists too. So it ends up being like, well, I think it's about 40% of the films that have participated have been made in any context. A lot of that has to do with just the readiness of the films when they apply and are selected. And a lot of it has to do with the press and promotion and just the, I think, kind of credibility that comes with being a finalist. So yeah, there's, I mean, you're, like you said, it's nice to win, but there's so much more uh, than that. Absolutely. One of the things that I wanted to ask about specifically is what do lasting and meaningful relationships with independent filmmakers look like? And you started to answer that, like not only was Tribeca supporting outside outside of the Untold Stories program itself, Tactically, what does that look like? Like, are you emailing with directors regularly? Are you doing check-ins? What does a lasting relationship with a festival actually look like? Yeah, that's a great question. There, it, what's really nice about the setup and the structure of, of Tribeca is that there is something for every part of your career. Because we have these earlier artist development programs that is often the first relationship to a filmmaker or it's a short film accepted to the program. And we talk and we share and we make sure that we all know about the filmmakers each other is tracking from those two verticals. Then there's premiering at the festival, doing something like Untold Stories, which is like you're ready for that next big kind of breakthrough step. And then we have things like the creator's market, which is an industry facing market, like a Gotham, one-on-one meetings with industry everywhere from uh, other funders and financiers, production companies, but also agents, managers, et cetera. And it covers podcasts and immersive and TV and really the full gamut. And then we bring people back, all of the mentors, panelists, jury members that are part of the programs I do the majority of them have been through the other work at Tribeca. So it is this really kind of interesting ecosystem that feeds itself as long as we're always on the hunt for, you know, new voices, which is something that that's the, mostly the thing that we like would like to spend all of our time doing. Yeah, <laughs> If I could, yeah. I would just be doing that. But I think that has really helped us have a finger on the pulse of the stage that everybody's at. Logistically, I mean, if if you win one of these programs or you're accepted as a finalist, probably you can't shake me. You know, (laughs) some people I'm sure feel that I'm harassing them a little bit, but I, we love to know what people are working on, where they're at, how we can help, how we can make calls on their behalf. The other work that we do at Tribeca Studios is really artistically driven brand partnered work. We have a great, we have had a lineage of working with like Dick Sporting Goods. Filmmakers might know a lot of the work that we did there. 
and we always have ongoing work. So we're able to take the filmmakers we work in artist development and say, are you interested in, in this type of work and content? And where we can, you know, pitch and have them meet funders or, or corporate brands on that side too. So that's a really nice way to be able to make sure that people are, you know, having pa- careers that allow you to to live. Yeah, exactly. Yes. That's amazing. I I think that there's so much, such a stigma around brand partnerships that really bums me out. I I think that there's a dismissal of it often. And coming from, again, the world of advertising, I do remember somebody telling me that a, a Gimlet creative show, quote, will never be as good as a Gimlet show because a brand paid for it. And I'm like, wow, that's all I see are my producer friends who are best in class audio storytellers who came from Planet Money, who came from, you know, WNYC, who came from all these places working their butt off to tell a great story and in partnership with a brand. Or often there were also purely editorial things that were would not exist if they weren't sponsored by a brand. And, you know, we live in this capitalistic society where the reality is like money doesn't grow on trees and the work we do is expensive. And, yeah. and so I think that we need to embrace and, and find partners who are brands who can help us bring our, our work to life or help us get our reps in, which is so valuable yeah. outside of that. Um, and so actually, one, one thing I'd love to hear also is for someone who is unfamiliar with like brand partnerships or the brand partnerships sides of things, can you speak to what a brand partner and how they're involved. For example, it is called AT&T Presents Untold Stories <laughs> right. or, or Chanel Through Her Lens. Yeah, I think that what you'll notice in some of our work and these programs is that the films themselves exist, uh, you know, visually, artistically, outside of the brands in, entirely. Untold stories, you will not see a phone in the film or someone yelling like, I've got perfect service here. That's not what that particular program is about. AT&T to us has been an an incredible partner because they provide a huge platform to be able to live stream the pitch uh, and put the the video pitches out there and fund the, you know, the, the press reps for the film and help create BTS content and reels and a ton of social media support, just things that you really cannot always get independently or with smaller production companies. That stuff really goes the distance. But I think what you will see is a very blue stage, you know, AT&T blue. You won't see something that you know, is anything completely like excessively or gratuitously violent, for example. Like there are certain elements that you could tie back to AT&T's mission, but their, you know, their brand mission is about connection. That's how they would phrase it, you know, connecting to the greater good, connecting people and untold stories naturally fits in that. You, you will not see this for every brand partnership, though. I, it's in the work, and it, it's there for you to do your research and find it. Uh, through her lens, Chanel's also a lovely partner. If you watch any of the short films that have received the funding, there will be a logo in the front of the program. And again, there will not be a Chanel bag or shirt you know, in, in every film. But they do an, a wonderful job uh, highlighting, I think, 
the legacy of women filmmakers in general at, throughout different um, partners and events that they have. And they always bring our filmmakers into the fold and, and put them first. So I think if you're looking to see, is this you know particular program or partnership something that would feel limiting, usually the evidence is right there in the work. When we work with brands that do want a bit more you know, inclusion of exactly what their product or their work is in the film, filmmakers know up front. And it's really up to them if that's something that they would like to do and be a part of. And we're there to kind of help the process and make sure that we all have one goal in mind. And there's always a treatment that everybody is signing off on that everybody's happy with. So Again, like that buzzword of mine, which is like demystifying. <laughs> yeah, like the idea is that nobody goes into any brand funding without really knowing what the brand's goals are yeah. and making sure that they feel that they can meet that within their own voice. And one thing that is always important to remember is that usually within the teams of people who are working at the brands are champions of film, people who love film. And that's probably why that program or that team exists is because there are people who are like, well, how can I, within my parameters, create a space to help create content or help support indie filmmakers and make that work underneath the umbrella of the mission of this company that I work at to pay my bills? That, that is so true. It's such a pleasure working with those individuals on their side, the days that we get to look at the finalists and really walk through the projects feels so exciting because speaking about early emerging independent film with people that don't work in film is so illuminating. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and people are very, very passionate about the work that they like and why they like it. It's so actually helpful to the work that I do to have insights outside of our little world. And for example, the P&G is a great partner we have. We have a program called the Queen Collective, which supports women, specifically Black women, who are telling their stories in short film form. But also P&G connects them to their commercial work. So it is a group of people who just love film and want to see more Black women directors. But because they're P&G, they're able to get them more work and access to fund their careers outside of that. and. They really are a like excellent platform and it just kind of grows and grows, but it is just the passion of the few people that work there that really made it all happen. Yeah. So I think that's spot on. When I was getting my start and finished my first short film, a producer named Kyle Scott told me, you have to have laurels to get laurels. Do you think it's <laughs> this? It was great advice for because it yeah. set expectation also for my short, for short film that I wanted to sh submit to uh, smaller festivals, which then led to bigger festivals. And, you know, it was this sort of like growing process. Do you believe that there is the same approach that you should take to labs and development programs? And this may segue into you speaking a bit about your work with Stowe Story Labs. Oh, yeah. I love Stowe. So, you know what? Again, this is kind of a case of what are people looking for? There are filmmakers that we've supported and worked with that I've seen the same project get submitted for like five, six years. And probably the filmmaker is going, why do I keep doing this? <laughs> this is like a waste of my time. And then they get the call. And usually that has to do with seeing the evolution of the work 
the dedication, the strides made in artistically and also like in networking and, um, you know, bringing your kind of like group of champions in the fold. But we've also worked with people that first time I've seen it, first time they've been in a program, first time they've applied to anything. The winner of Untold Stories this year, I've never seen his work before or met him or got to know him. The one the year before, I had been talking to her about her project for like five, six years. So it really, it it's, there's no consistency to it from my end, aside from that feeling that somebody really knows what they have. I would avoid applying to things if you feel you don't really know your story well enough to talk about it to a group of strangers. Otherwise, you will probably feel that you're not getting enough out of it. You, you know, you'll probably leave feeling more confused if you're if you don't if you're not ready to either receive feedback or like really grapple with it. But working with Stowe, there are people that come to those labs with treatments and they take so much away from it because it's extended time with people that really, really, really love story. That's what they look for in the mentors and the people that come in to do work from the industry side is just absolute cinephiles, like lover lovers of film and writing. And you will know that, you know, like doing your research of who's been in that program and such. So I think it is like knowing exactly what you're putting yourself up for will save you energy (laughs) of like racking your brain. Like, is this the right time? And, but I'll also say to the, like, you need laurels to get laurels thing. Like I'm not fact checking. (laughs) Yeah. you know, like things can sound more impressive with, with like a bio written a certain way than another way. You know, yeah, like, uh, yeah. I think people need to like feel more comfortable shouting themselves out. Yeah. I see a lot of like watering down a bio or a personal statement or a pitch. And then I look the person up and they've like won awards and they've got their like Vimeo short of the week. I'm like, why don't you know you should shout it out? It helps a lot when you're working with someone else, when you have your producer or your writer director team or whatnot, because then you don't have to always feel like you're, I don't know, boasting, I guess. But I do think that sometimes you might think like, this is not a laurel, but to me, it is a laurel because of what I'm, you know, what my job is, what I'm right. looking for. My, I worked on a project with a co-writer and we wrote each other's bios because it was so yeah. much easier to brag about her and she was like an award-winning Rolling Stone journalist. Like I was like, this is amazing. You've interviewed Elizabeth Warren, like brag, brag, brag. And then- Yeah, put it uh, in the bio. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Oh, that that brings up another question. Oh, I, I recent, or I think when I was first starting out, I was trying to figure out how to craft a bio. And in- my application process to film school, I somehow was awarded a very small, I think it was $2,000, but in the grand scheme of things, that's a huge difference, but scholarship. And it was the Robert De Niro scholarship that was just a one line item on my acceptance letter. And then like nothing ever came from it. Mm. It was, it went right to the thing, but I was like, what is this scholarship? You Google it, there's nothing there. But I'm like, Robert De Niro scholarship award recipient, put that in the bio. Like, that's huge. I don't really know what it is. And, you know, I'm excited for his birthday coming up this next year. (laughs) But like, it was a, it was like one of those things where I had to also see like, again, how do I 
arm the reader or the reviewer with any information that they have so they can make the case for this project and for me as a creative. And, and I think that is that that is a great tip for demystifying the process and having no shame. And it is something to be celebrated, you know, to get a scholarship period should be celebrated. Yeah. And in a weird way, this, if you're interested in doing programs and labs like this, it is a bit like applying for a job in the sense that your career as a filmmaker will likely not be consistent. It will be ever changing. You will be cobbling pieces together. There will be one thing at a time. And this could be like the first chapter of a career or some chapter of a career and approaching it a bit like, I want people to know who they're going to be working with is important, especially a program that is, you know, dedicated time with people. You know, if you're in a a lab that's months long or year long, people are spending a lot of time with the filmmakers they want to have some sense of who they are. And it is hard to do that in a bio. It's hard to do it in an application in general. And my advice to that is just like imbue your voice into things that usually read dry. Like I love a treatment or a synopsis that is super descriptive or funny or odd. I, we have the genre box on the application and most people write comedy or drama, but I love when it's some like weird made up <laughs> genre that's not a genre, but it's just one extra box that tells me who you are. And I think maybe, like you said, showing it to a friend or a peer, coworker, and getting some opinion on like, does this sound like me at all? Could really be make a difference because it is so much time spent with people. Just as we're on the other side, and we can, it feels like you're just sending things off to um, probably like AI right now, right? <laughs> but right. you know, like we we are people that fall in love with scripts and and the potential of a project because we love the work and vice versa. And like at the more that you can kind of show yourself. So I know that there would be some collaboration is helpful, you know, just one tiny little extra thing that maybe would set it ahead. Has there ever been a bio that you fell in love with? (laughs) I was actually just talking (laughs) to my coworker about a bio that we got a couple years ago, but I always think about it when I start reading applications because the last sentence of it is, And if she wasn't a filmmaker, she would be a reality TV star. And I wouldn't have known that, I think, just from reading maybe like the synopsis of the film or something. But once I had that in my head and imagining her pitching and kind of like the sense of humor started to come out even more in the script. It's just like that thing that was in the back of my head. You know, she's yeah. a reality star. Yes. And so I, that like fun, nothing at all to do with her as a filmmaker really, but a lot to do with her as a, like to just show what she thinks is funny and what she thinks is eye-catching. And it just kind of helped me get in her head space. So shout out Rachel Moten. <laughs> I yes. love that bio. <laughs> That's amazing. So let's actually use this as a point to pivot into talking about how you came here. Usually we start with people telling us their story and how they ended up in in this space. But but I want to hear your journey. How did you find your way to leading artist development at Tribeca? Yeah. Well, I won the Robert De Niro scholarship. No, I'm just kidding. So I was like, seriously? <laughs> Tell me all about it. <laughs> that would be in great. a way you, you um, have. Yeah. 
<laughs> in a way I have, yeah. Yeah. I actually, I, I, I know of Tribeca. I don't really know if anybody, if I've ever really told this story to anybody I work <laughs> with or, but I, when I was like maybe 15 or 16, I filmed, I was an extra in a movie and I had one line and I saw that it was premiering at Tribeca and my parents like knew what it what that was. And we went to go see it and we ate at the grill, which is on the block that I now work in the office. Oh my god. And my scene was cut. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, but you went did and you I go never in and acted it? again. <laughs> what a great way to like get your start. At yeah, the but I got, it was festival. cool. I got to see what a festival is and what it's like to see a movie before it's out in an independent movie. And, you know, it was a really like a core memory. But my, from like a career perspective, I came up in theater and I had a a theater production company. I ran with a few great friends that we, it was called Ugly Rhino and it's probably not searchable, but we were out of Brooklyn (laughs) and we did something every month for years in New York and then in LA that was a short play kind of event. We would give writers five things that had to happen in their script. Like somebody puts on a hat, somebody speaks in a different language. Every time those happened, you would drink. So it was a drinking game Amazing. short play festival. <laughs> but through that, I worked with different writers every month for years. And from like a dramaturgical perspective, from a creative producer perspective, we did all new plays, all mainly immersive work. All of that took me away from what I thought I wanted to do, which was be a Broadway producer. Essentially, I worked for a Broadway production company. And the more that I worked with writers and other creators, I think I found my affinity for being a part of empowering other people to say what they want to say. And I had studied film a bit from like a film history perspective in school. I always kind of intended to figure out how to work in film. And eventually I was like, well, I got to give something a shot. And I started temping at Tribeca and Mm -hmm. just basically stuck around until someone would give me a job. And then with all of the work that I had done with writers, kind of naturally fell into this department and, you know, spent many years hopefully sharpening my skills enough to be eligible to continue doing this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, just look at the, if 40% of the films that were accepted into the Untold Programs, un, Untold Stories program have been made into films, I think that is over-indexing at success in terms of yeah. development. Like think about all the films that a development exec touches and how many fall through. It's much higher the fall through rate than... 60%. So I think you're, you're yeah. telling it. It is nice to not exactly be a development executive, but sort of be a development executive. But you know that there are parameters for getting work done and out there. And also people come to you in this exciting way. When you open for submissions, people really share themselves with you. And mm-hmm. I think they trust that we really like put our soul and heart and into like receiving the work. And I don't know if that can be said for every development executive. Maybe right, some of that. Right. <laughs> now, what advice do you have for someone who is interested in being part of the festival world? Somebody who may be in on the cusp of applying to film school, or maybe they just finished, or maybe they have no interest in going to school, but basically want to follow in your footsteps. 
Oh, to work on this side of things? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, first go to festivals. Go to a lot of them. Don't go to like the big five or the big 10. Go to ones where, well, you should go to those, but you should also go to ones where you can meet a ton of people where you can wait outside a theater and tell a producer you love their work, where you can find the programmer at the bar or at the, you know, like the the, the, the happy central hour. lounge. Or, yes. Yeah. You know, you go and find people and tell them you like what they do. I think I've met a lot of really good collaborators more so through being active and like and showing each other the commitment to the work rather than a general reach out. I think a lot of, you know, but also working, probably if you want to do something like this, you have worked either in production or you've been a creative yourself for some period of time and you're like looking to be a part of another side of it. I think that is really helpful to be able to kind of understand all sides of the coin. Uh, So doing that work, even if it's not exactly the end goal, I think only really feeds your ability to do this kind of thing. If you want to be a programmer, you got to get contact lenses, (laughs) blue light glasses, whatever, to set yourself up to ruin your eyes. But watching as many things as possible Mm -hmm. and, and just getting involved with the people that work with them socially, I think is really helpful. And are there any festivals or labs that are in that sort of space that is developing up and coming or small in that you recommend people check out? Mm. Well, there, I mean, there's so many great festivals. I mean, ones that I can think of that feel really community driven, where you really get to meet a lot of people in the U.S., New Orleans, which just happened, comes to mind. Mm-hmm. They have great programming, but also they they bring a lot of industry who are around for the stretch. And it they make it quite easy to meet people and enjoy your time spent with them. Black Star is a great film festival. Really, I, I felt like very easy to meet and talk to people and approach people. And also ex- kind of expands every year. And there's more to see. I, you know, there's like the ones in the city, like Brooklyn and Bushwick, that if you're in New York are great to go to. I don't know. Those are kind of off the top of my head, but I do find that you can go to Sundance and either never actually talk to anybody because you're online. I mean, I love going to Sundance, but you could be online all day for something or, you know, you're going to the stuff that you wanted to see with the people you know, because it's so big and that going to ones that, are like a little tighter if your goal is to meet as many people as possible might actually like ironically work better. Yeah, absolutely. Some of the most important connections I've made were at the Sundance small events. Yeah, 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 yeah. Me too. Or like sitting on the bus. You know, truly, the Sundance bus is a great place to meet people. (laughs) And and the I'd say I went to Tribeca this year, and the running into people that you had met or started to build relationships with over the course of a career, like that's another reason to be present at these festivals. Is it brings the business into one location, one central location where you can run into people, and that's powerful. That that's one thing we always talk about on the podcast is being in the mix. 
And Mm -hmm. even if you're not part of a development program or in the festival, there's still power in being in the mix and meeting people and being present and then just soaking up all the great films. (laughs) That's very true. And if you're a person who's a little shyer or less comfortable with networking, attending panels, like things that are focused around watching something and receiving information, I think just makes it a lot easier to talk to people after because you could say, what did you think of that? Or I loved your question. If you're not the kind of person that just strolls up to someone's like, hey, I love your movie. There's usually, I mean, definitely a Tribeca. There's a lot of information receiving that you could do that kind of like pivots you into conversation. So I'm so much more comfortable personally in that space. I don't like to walk into like a happy hour where I don't know anybody and be like, hey, yep. I loved your movie. So I, I usually am at the Q&As and things like that. I'm trying to find people that way. I am right there with you. And those are the spaces where like some of the best connections have occurred. Well, thank you so much, Bryce, for joining us. And in our outro, I'll give all the details about applying for AT&T's Untold Stories program and where folks can learn more. Is there anywhere that people can follow your work? No. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed you're not on Instagram and I respect the hell out of that. I just like fell off of it and I never went back. But I do have to say that I am really bothering my lovely coworker, Michelle, because I keep asking her like, what's going on with this film and what's going on with that filmmaker? And she tells me what everybody's up to. And she's like, if you just kind of went on Instagram, you might be able to do this yourself. (laughs) So maybe it's time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we... Appreciate you coming on and thank you so much. Thank you so much, Bryce, for joining us and for helping us demystify this whole process. As soon as we wrapped recording, Bryce asked if I could share her email for the program, untoldstories at tribecafilm.com. I think that just goes to show how actually the emails that you are sending when you send it to this sort of like generic email are reaching people who are decision makers. And that's a great opportunity for you to ask questions, for you to present yourself as a curious creative, and for you to further put your best foot forward when submitting to these programs. Immediate next steps are the AT&T's Untold Stories initiative is now open. It just opened this week. It's really the only program of its kind that funds a film for a million dollars. A lot of those films, including The Graduates, which premiered at Tribeca this year, have gone on to have great success. And the program also allows full project ownership to BIPOC filmmakers. The winning films average 92% on Rotten Tomatoes, so you know the storytelling is there. Per our conversation as well, you'll see how even finalists or even just being associated with a program like this can uplift your career. I definitely recommend checking out that episode with the team behind Mutt. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in. And please let us know what you thought of this episode. What was helpful? What questions do you have as follow-up? We can follow up with Bryce and answer them for all of our listeners. You can get more No Film School at nofilmschool.com. You can also follow us on socials at nofilmschool. You can also like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast across all platforms. Thank you again for tuning in and let us know what else you want us to talk about.